Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hi, I'm Gail. And I'm Catherine. We are the active voice of Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and we're delighted to welcome you to today's episode. Each week, we showcase vital women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s who continue to shatter the myths that we become invisible as we age. The 30-minute conversation with our guest focuses on several themes that we've agreed upon in advance. Our guest today is Frances Fuller, age 91. She lives in California in the foothills of the Sierras. Frances grew up in Arkansas. Her family was very poor. From an early age, she loved writing, and after graduating high school, was recruited by an editor to write for the local newspaper. This led to a long career in journalism a degree from Louisiana Tech, and another in religious education at Golden State Seminar in Berkeley, Seminary in Berkeley, where she met her husband, Wayne. Both of them were committed to Christian service abroad. Together, they embarked on an adventurous missionary journey, which led to 32 years in Lebanon and Jordan, where they raised five children a small Christian publishing program pressed her into writing materials needed in the Middle East. Her work was translated and published in Arabic. In 1970, she became the director of the publishing program, producing Christian literature for the entire Arab world. In this role, she established a legal publishing house, led in the training of local Christian writers, and produced such materials as History's First Arabic Concordance of Bible, and a cartoon strip Bible story bestseller, and hundreds of books basic to a Christian library. Most of this was accomplished under the stress of Lebanon's long civil war. After retirement, Francis wrote In Borrowed Houses, a true story of love and faith amidst war in Lebanon. And less than one year ago, Francis published Helping Yourself Grow Old. Things I said to myself when I was almost 90. It's such a wonderful title, Francis. Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. We're happy to have you. Thank you, Gail. I'm happy to participate. Good. There are so many things we'd like to discuss with you. Perhaps we could begin by talking about how a degree in journalism led to Christian service and caused you to dedicate a good portion of your life to well, the Lebanese people. just about the time I began to um, graduate from Louisiana Tech with my degree in journalism, I realized that journalism was a tool with which I could do many different things. And I've wanted anything that I did to be consistent with who I was. And actually, my Christian faith was very important to me. It was fundamental to who I was. And I felt that journalism needed, anyway, another subject, something special that would be my field that I could write about. 
And so I thought that religion seemed to be the appropriate thing for me. And I chose the school in Berkeley because they offered me uh, a job uh, in the press relations office so that I could support myself while I was going to school. And it did turn out that a degree in journalism was very uh, helpful because uh, once we we got to the Middle East, and actually we chose the Middle East because of the many Arab friends we made uh, in Berkeley. A, a lot of students from the Arab world were studying at UC Berkeley, and we knew many and we had special rapport with them. And so we chose to go for uh, under a lifetime appointment to the Middle East to do whatever we found to do that was a service to um, the people. And um, immediately um, I found the opportunity. The first opportunity I had was that, you know, we worked with um, groups of Americans who were there. Uh, there were, you know, very, in Jordan, there were about 18 of us. Then after we went to Lebanon, there were 24. And I was always the press representative for the group, which meant that I was responsible for reporting uh, to America what we were doing. And so I wrote news articles after news article all the time. And whatever was happening might be uh, a battle going on in Jordan, and we were there observing, and it affected us in some way. So I had this material to to write about. And then there was a small publishing program. It was not exactly a publishing house in Beirut, and they began to ask me to uh, write materials for them. And so I wrote little books of a, a wide variety of subjects. And some of these were made into radio programs and they were translated into Arabic also for, for publication as in little books. And um, then the, the director of the publishing house uh, of the publishing program died. And uh, we at about that same time decided to move back to Beirut where we had lived one year doing uh, Arabic studies. And there I became the director of the publishing program and I established two um, legal publishing names and uh, I directed a, a staff of people and we did really historic events, uh, uh, material, some of which uh, you have named. At one point we took on a very um, ambitious project to do something that had never been done in the in the Middle East. And that was for the people themselves to write the curriculum that they needed to teach their children and young people. And so I organized writing conferences and we trained 125 people, Lebanese, Jordanians, Egyptians, and Palestinians to write um, curriculum. And so it was the first time that uh, Christian churches in the Middle East had a curriculum that was written in Arabic 
by Arabs for the Arab world. And so I used my journalism skills and I learned as I went. I, I learned a lot more about writing and a lot more about um, publishing and everything as I went. I often was doing things I didn't quite know how to do, but uh, my staff and I learned sometimes together how to do this. When sometimes we would get um, discouraged and um, I would say, you know, the good thing about this is that when we get it done, we will know how to do it. <laughs> and, um, and in fact, <laughs> well, you know, it's the way life works. We, we, we learn by doing and we've done it, then we know how and we can show someone else if someone else wants, uh, wants to know. But that's how uh, I, it, I, it seems like a big leap in a way. And I will um, I tell you that on the way, you know, when I was just growing up, um, I was a teenager during uh, World War II, and I had a great love for Ernie Pyle, who had a column in the newspaper every day. And he just wrote simple stories about simple men in sometimes men in trenches and i sort of had this dream of being the female ernie pyle who traveled the world and write about simple people simple stories about simple people i loved that idea and in fact i got the chance to to do that more than that and uh, and, and it was one, and I should tell you also that uh, I didn't mention this for some reason when I was giving you information about myself, but you know, we had furloughs from the Middle East when we would come back home and visit family and, and do other things that we needed to do. And in one of those uh, furlough years, actually in 1980, uh, having become the director of the publishing house, I didn't want anymore to be the writer. I wanted to be the person who led other people to write. It was my responsibility to develop writers. And so I did a degree, uh, a master's in English, which was really a writing program at Hollins University in Virginia. And I got that master's degree and I, my purpose in doing it was to learn the process, how do we learn to write and how can we help other people uh, learn to write? And so I, I used that very much in the work that I did. Wow. <laughs> you, you're just amazing to me uh, and so inspirational. Tell me a little bit about how it was to actually live uh, in in Lebanon and in Jordan, how was it to live there with children, and how did their education happen? And you said also that it it was um, during the their long civil yes. war. So how did that well, affect you? Actually, there are, there are many things to mention. One is that we did have uh, in Amman, Jordan, there was a small American community school. Uh, where our children uh, studied. There was one year when um, 
the group, the whole group of Americans worked together and taught our children. And really, they had uh, amazing teachers that that year because I I taught English and I had a degree in journalism and a degree in English. Um, the, their science teacher was a doctor. And, uh, you know, that was just the, I mean, we had experts in all these different fields who had been appointed to do uh, work there in Jordan. And they, we all taught the children together and shared the responsibilities. But mostly my children went to American schools. There was a very fine uh, school in Beirut. The, uh, my children felt that, that their, their education there was superior to what they would get in the average <clears throat> high school in, in California. Um, also, because they went at a young age uh, to the Middle East, they naturally learned to speak Arabic because um, they needed to. Some, some the, the younger they were, the youngest ones learned Arabic more easily and became more fluent than the older ones. Uh, but all of them were young enough to learn with a, a lot of facility. And they had, uh, there were times when they could speak Arabic better than we could. That is, especially the street Arab, you know, the language that children used on the playground, they could teach us things, you know. And, um, and they loved their people. There was no problem at all. And actually, we had five children. And we didn't know when we went um that the arabs um the arabs really take pride in big families the, the muslims believe that um that if god loves you he's going to give you a lot of children and so the children were a great asset to us in many ways and they were uh three of our five had red hair which was very unusual, <laughs> attracted a lot of attention, but everybody thought they were incredibly beautiful and were interested in them. And then in Lebanon, you know, Lebanon, there are three, really speaks three languages. Uh, the basic, the, the legal languages of Lebanon are French and Arabic. And any educated person speaks at least French and Arabic. And so as a result of all of this, some of my children are trilingual. They speak French, Arabic, and English. And that hasn't been no handicap in this world. And um, so I don't know if I have answered your if if I have answered your question. They did get um, we felt that they got good education. They did have uh, exposure to um, some fearful situations. They they know the sound of gunfire. They have uh, seen injured people. Um, our eldest uh, son once, uh, it, during the conflicts in Jordan, um, he saw a child um, who had stepped on a landmine and uh, it affected mm. him uh, so deeply. He was like 13 years old at the time. And uh, at the, he told us, no one, no one is ever going to make me do that. I said, do what? What do you mean? And he said, no one is ever 
going to make me plant a mine that a little boy might step on. And um, so because of their experiences, my children tend to be very anti-war and very um, peace-loving. And at the same time, you know, all of them came to the States to, when they were 18 years old, they all came to the States to go to college and uh, didn't live with us anymore. And in fact, our two youngest children, we sent um, to Athens, to the American Academy in Athens, um, because the war had started in Lebanon. And we literally, uh, in the spring of 1975, <clears throat> were going out on the balcony in the morning and listening to the gunfire before we would decide to send the children to school or not, because we needed to know what direction the gunfire was, what, what direction are they fighting in? And um, we felt that we could endure uh, the situation, but if we didn't have to worry about our children. And so our youngest two very bravely went off to Athens and, and studied. And um, we would meet, the war was in Lebanon, and we would meet in Jordan for their holidays. And, um, but they supported us through it all. They were, it was hard for them to be in America, and we were still in the war in Lebanon. Uh, but they never ceased to support us. They, they understood uh, why we were there. They, they knew our hearts were in it. And they knew that, uh, I mean, they loved Lebanon too. Uh, so they knew better than uh, uh, the ordinary American listening to the news. They knew that, okay, there's fighting in this one place, but that doesn't mean there's fighting everywhere. And our parents are, okay, they know what they're doing. So... We we had we had that that was a tremendous help that they gave us by not um, by not feeling that we should leave and come home. Mm -hmm. And and when did you actually come home for good? Well, for, first we retired in nineteen ninety five, um, but you know. The American State Department uh, made Americans leave Lebanon in 1987. And when that happened, we went over to the island of Cyprus, which is like um, an overnight boat ride on a ferry. And um, I was able to go in and out of Lebanon using just my Lebanese ID card. Um, we learned that we... The, the United States government couldn't actually tell us where we could go. They could only tell us where we could use their passport. And so, so long as we didn't get our passport stamped, we could go to Lebanon. Mm. <laughs> and so I, I, and the publishing house was uh, an international thing. Uh, and I needed to travel a lot anyway. So I could travel to Egypt and Jordan and, other places from Cyprus easily. And um, 
it, it worked. It was hard. It was very hard, but it, but it worked. And and we got our job done, which was the important thing. Right, right. And then then you wrote two books. And yes. I, we really would love to know about your second book. The first book, of course, was In Borrowed Houses, A True Story of Love and Faith Amidst War in Lebanon. Right. And th But the second one is so intriguing. Uh, well, I'm sure the first one is too, but the second one is really intriguing to me, and that is helping yourself grow old and what you think about aging now that you are over 90. <laughs> what, yeah. what made you decide to do that, Francis? Well, actually, when I began writing it, I didn't realize that I was writing a book. Uh, I, I, I have always written things in order to think. If I need to think something through, I sit down and I write it out. And as soon as I write out, I mean, it might be nothing but my opinion. And as soon as I write it out, it becomes somehow objective. And I can look at it um, critically and, and I can change my mind. I can say that's not very good. I, can, I don't like that idea. It's, something's wrong with it. Uh, so... I was talking, literally talking to myself. My first uh, title for the book was Things I Said to Myself because that's literally <laughs> what it was. I was writing for myself. And then uh, I, be, I sent it, I sent pieces of it to a very close friend, um, someone I have not seen for many years, but uh, we have always maintained a close connection. And I sent her some of these, and she said, Francis, everybody would, will identify with this. You, you need to share this. And then I joined a, a little writing group where there were uh, two other women who were, who were writing. One of them, both of them were writing novels. And, and they also uh, assured me that, um, that people would love it and that they would identify. And actually, I then I did some research and I found that there are many, many, many books on aging. Mm -hmm. There are so many, you'd be astonished how many they are. But most of them were written by sociologists, gerontologists, uh, doctors, people who never were old, actually. <laughs> um, it, it is a little bit unusual to find a book that is written um, by the person who is experiencing the, the difficulties of aging. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I didn't start doing this until actually my husband died and uh, in, um, on the first day of the second day of June in in 19 in 2017 and um the first words that i wrote were um about my grief and i wrote a, a very big section on on grief and um but i didn't i didn't know when i wrote it that i was writing it for anyone else and then you know, I had to make some changes when I realized, okay, I'm willing to uh, make this into a book and, and publish it. I did make um, 
some adjustments to that, I'm, I'm sure. But I began with, um, I mean, it really came out of my heart and it became, it almost became an ongoing story that I didn't know what the conclusion would be. <laughs> Uh, because I don't know today what will happen tomorrow. And I could only say what happened up till today, you know. And so I wrote about little things. And and um, some things turned out to be quite funny. And uh, and it, it, it became a real um, uh, outlet for, for me to, to write these things. And I realized that... Um, that I really was making decisions about how I wanted to live. Um, old, I didn't exactly realize I was old until my husband died. I think that's why I never wrote anything like that until after he died. And um, two, But two people compensate one another for what they're missing. And, and so... If, when you're left alone, suddenly there are things you can't do and no one does for you. And so that causes you to feel kind of inept, you know, and you start to think, my goodness, I'm so old. That's my problem, you know. And um, But I did really a lot of soul searching. And I, I have had a wonderful um, response to the book. Um, and I feel that the reason for this, I don't think my book is a great a writing accomplishment, but it's, it's chatty, it's personal, it's real simple, easy to read, and people identify. And, you know, we all have known for half a century that, um, what is most personal is most universal. And I believe that's why people love my book, because it's just me. It's just my story about being old. It might not be exactly like that for you, but it connects. It's going to connect with what you feel because it's close enough, you know. And I, and, um, it has all helped me to, to see I mean, I can see what's hard about getting really old. And at the same time, I have so much appreciation now for, for what's really wonderful about it. Because I find that the best thing about being old is being able to look back and see where I've been mm -hmm. and see what contribution did I make to the world, to other people's lives? What did I do with my gifts? Um, and and what and it it's actually there's kind of a puzzle in it for me, and there may be for a lot of other people. But you know, I was born in 1929. That's the year that the Great Depression started, and we were so poor that I didn't have any books in my home. When I was a child, I had no books. The Sears and Roebuck catalog was the closest thing to a book that I had when I was a child. 
And my mother had only a fourth grade education. She was barely literate. And so I never had a bedtime story. There was no concept of a bedtime story. And, uh, and when I went to school, um, I failed the first time I had a chance to learn to read. You know, we had uh, these little, what they called our reader, and the books that I had all the way through school belonged to the state of Arkansas. They didn't belong to me. And when I had gone through it, I had to give it back uh, to the state. And I can remember a perpetual grief because I'm giving back the books that I have loved so much, you know. But anyway, in the very first little reader, we, there was a picture on every page, and then under the picture, just one line of type. And at the end of the day, the teacher would, we would all open our books, and she would read us that one line, and we would turn the page, and she would read us that line under that picture. And I don't know, three or four or five pictures we did in a day. I was reading pictures. I thought her what she was saying somehow came out of the pictures. I didn't get the point of the line <laughs> picture. And, and I went home and I could read it to my mother because I could open it and tell her exactly what was written under every picture. And then, then I could go back to school the next day. And so I fooled my mother, I fooled the teacher, I fooled myself because I thought I was reading. <laughs> And, and I was only like memorizing what the teacher said when she looked at the pictures. Sure. Right. And so at the end of the book, there was one page that was just a, a column of words. It was the vocabulary that was in the little book. And I did not know a single word. And that's when I, when I was uh, discovered. Um, and the teacher put everybody else in book two and sat down with me alone and taught me to read. <laughs> you know, we could go on forever. Your stories are just fascinating. Well, I just, I just really wanted to make the point is that this little girl who had no books in her home and a barely literate mother became a publisher leading a whole community of Christian Arabs who create their own literature in the Arabic language. I mean, to me, it's a miracle what God takes and uses. And I, I, it's difficult to understand. Yes, and who you are today. Look how fluent you are and how capable you are of discussing all of this and making so much sense. It, it's really an absolute treat to have you on the show and to hear about your long journey. I can't wait to read Helping Yourself Grow Old, and I know that uh, we'll, we'll be in contact with you many times in the future. One of my favorite things that you said, Francis, is when we get it done, we'll know how to do it. That seems to be a wonderful theme throughout your life. Wonderful. Well, I so enjoyed talking with you, and uh, and I really like um, what you're doing, and I will be following it, too. So thank you. Thank you so much. And listeners, we want to hear from you. 
Please share your thoughts in our Facebook group at Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Become an active participant in our community. Join us at our Zoom events. You can access our weekly Wednesday podcasts. And if you know a vital woman over 70 who would be a great guest, please recommend her to us at womenover70.com. See you next Wednesday on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myths that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com.